Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. Well, we are coming to the tail end of Esther. If you're reading, you're like, wow, Nick, how are you going to do a whole sermon on chapter 10 next week? Well, you'll see. We're on nine. And if you're reading the subheading that says the Jews destroy their enemies, it's like, oh, we're going to talk about fighting and war? And kind of, yes. And the, and the title of this is God's plan on God's timing. God's plan is always run on his timing in our lives. And we may not realize that all the time. We want God to act sometimes quicker than we, we need to. But his timing is impeccable. But it goes into chapter 9 is going to really describe where Purim, the festival that we've talked about, hinted at, where it comes from. And what's the point of Purim, this Jewish festival that they celebrate? Really around February is the time this takes place. And it's kind of ironic in some ways that Purim is actually named after Pur, which was the month that Haman, very good, we're just about wrapping that up, so that was pretty bad, Haman, very good, picked to be the month that he would destroy, annihilate, to cause genocide to the Jewish people as a whole. And so Purim builds off that, ironic that it was the month of Pur, and then they celebrate Purim, and we're going to get into that this morning because we have to realize that God's hand in history never rules out our actions. In essence, we have a role to play. God chooses to use us in history, he uses us and our actions to accomplish his purposes. You can't thwart God, you can't change his purposes, but he uses us in mighty different ways. So we're going to jump here, chapter 9, verse 1 through 2. We're going to kind of pick apart chapter 9. We're going to jump around a little bit in this chapter it says, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Asherus, or Xerxes, to lay hands on those who sought their, their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all people's and so there's a reversal of fortunes that has taken place here. You read that in the first verse, verse here, when the king commands and his edict, and his command was to destroy the Jews. That's what Haman was trying to do. There's a perception of the Jews as well that's starting to stir, that they can't really be, no one can harm them. There's a gathering that people are seeing the Jews as this providential win. They're going to win. They're on the winning side. And so they're wanting to join with the Jews. It says the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Asherus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. Mordecai's edict didn't exactly protect them. They had to do something. They had to play a part. It wasn't enough that the edict went out. It wasn't enough that it was said by the king. The rule was they would guard. They would stand and fight. And so they've rallied to them. They're standing and they're fighting. In verse 3, it says this, all the officials, the provinces, 
and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So there's this providence, providence as we see it, God's hand moving. That as the Jews prepare, people are rallying to their side. There's a fear going on that Haman, who was in charge, all of a sudden he's been disposed of. This Mordecai, he's a Jew, everyone's falling in love with and they're in the bandwagon joining because they don't want to be destroyed like Haman. And so it's then all the officials in the provinces, they helped the Jews. Prior to this, they weren't helping. Prior to this, they didn't care. The Jews were the Jews. To them, it didn't matter. And so here, there's a fear. And so they're saying, well, if Mordecai's on the right-hand side of the king, then we want to be on Mordecai's side as well. And so they start to rally. They start to give insider information, you can say, that they have gained favor. They're getting insider trading information on the movement of the enemies of the Jews. They're saying, oh, maybe, and we don't have it said, potentially they're giving them maybe weapons, potentially maybe some training, potentially they're saying, hey, why don't you use this? We'll clear out the area. There's help that they didn't expect and didn't anticipate. All the sun is giving to the Jews. The people feared the man Mordecai. They want to be on his good side. So there's this word that I learned years ago, schmooze. Anybody ever heard that word? Schmoozing. So I learned it from a lawyer. So if you're a lawyer, I apologize. But he's like, Nick, we lawyers, we like to schmooze, which means we want to schmooze. We want to get on your good side. And that's kind of what's taking place here. Everyone's schmoozing with Mordecai. They want him to hear what they have done for his people. So they gain and curry favor. They're seeing that on one end, it was Haman. They were currying favor. He's been disposed of. Now we want to curry favor over here. But God's hand is still with them, but it's still in the reality that we have our part to play in this. The Jews still have to fight. They can't just lay back and say, okay, God, deal with them. He is, but he's using human responsibility with this. And it sets kind of the scene. You kind of see this in verse 4 where it sets, a, sets the scene. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame had spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. He's, God's with him. And because of that, his plans won't be thwarted. He's gaining more and more. He's the number two in the kingdom. And because of all that, it leads to what happens in verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. They annihilated them, which is what the edict said to do, that if you were attacked by whomever, then you were allowed to defend yourself and take their possessions. That's key. Think about this for a minute. Killing as they pleased those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And in verse 7, and also killed Parshandatha, and these are the names that you can read, because I can't pronounce them, the names of Haman's sons. And it says in verse 10, we're, saying we're skipping that, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And here you can circle, highlight, or underline, but they laid no hand on the plunder. They were allowed to take all the gold, all the household items. Anyone they killed took out, they were allowed to take. But instead of that, they took no plunder, which is a key part because the Jews were allowed to do this. This was exactly what was written against them in the early parts of Esther, that they were to kill the Jews and take all of their possessions, and from that, they would funnel into the king's treasury. The new edict said that you can do that because you can't cancel out that edict. We're going to write a contrary one where the Jews now have it's a level playing field. The Jews can kill you and take all of your plunder if you attack them. And yet the Jews have said, we're not taking any of it, which if you're familiar with Scripture or know about it, there's a story in Exodus. As the people come out of Exodus, 
Moses is with them. At the end of Exodus, they're about ready to go into the promised land. And before they go in, he says, you know, be mindful. He passes the baton to Joshua. And you start in Joshua, and he takes down Jericho, the first city in the promised land. And when Joshua knocks down the walls, God does. But when Joshua does and follows him, God says, don't take anything. And there's a wee little man named Achan who goes in and sees some things that he likes and wants. And he takes it and brings it into the camp of Israel. Doesn't tell anyone. They go to the next city to conquer it, and they lose. And they're routed. And they're like, what in the world? And Joshua prays, and it's revealed Achan's sin because he took plunder he wasn't supposed to. Here, they're not under that same obligation. But it's a similar mindset that when they went into the promised land, Joshua and the people of Israel were being used by God. They were pretty much his hands and his feet, but not in the best way. They were going to take out all of the groups of people there. Their sin had gotten to a point where judgment was, was decreed. The Israelite people were God's instrument to go in and do this. God said, don't take the plunder. Someone did. And here they're allowed, yet they don't, because it parallels a similar thing. It parallels a, what we call, and we have misused the word, a holy war. And it's different than what we see in war today. God uses people. And he uses people, particularly in the Old Testament, as basically his wrath. He would do that at times. Babylon also served as this to Israel. He brought them in. And at this point, there's a reason for all of this. There's a holy war point, and it's not normal military action. The author, again, is showing God's hand in the midst of all of this. Because when you look at Haman's lineage, it goes back to that lineage of who was he around. He was an Agite, which if you write that somewhere, Agite, 1 Samuel, you will touch on that in just a moment. Spurgeon writes here that there, is, there it is, a man is a free agent in what he does, responsible for his actions, and verily guilty when he does wrong, and when he will justly be punished too. And if he, but, if he be lost the blame, will rest with himself alone. But yet there is one who rules over all, who without complicity in their sin makes even their actions of wicked men to subserve his holy and righteous purposes. Believe these two truths, and you will see them in practical agreement in daily life though you will not be able to devise a theory for harmonizing them on paper. Spurgeon's point is God's plan will not be thwarted, yet he somehow uses us and for the bring about his purposes. We have a part to play, and we're still judged for our actions. And you can say, well, God knows everything. There's a weird connection of how that works, and I don't know. Yet it's truth that God works through history. His hand is over it, and he chooses us. Had Esther not stepped up to the plate, you better believe God still would have stepped up in another way. And yet Esther said yes, and she went in, and she's gaining favor. Mordecai is gaining favor. And so you see it happen that at the start of the story, as Esther comes into queenhood, as the edict begins, and the Jews look like they're about to be annihilated, you see God's hand and providentially move through people. He is still behind the scenes. He is still pushing in favor. And here it comes to the point of action where, okay, God uses them to kill just in the capital 500 men. So it gets really interesting next because the next point is finish well and finish strong. We tend to start well. We don't always finish well. And a lot of times we look for permission to even start. So when we start New Year's, when it gets to New Year's, we have New Year's resolutions, right? And most of us need permission sometimes to get started. But when the going gets tough, We don't look for permission to quit. We just quit more often than not. So we need to finish well, finish strong. And you read verse 11, and you see this kind of start to play out. 
That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? It's like a rhetorical. He's curious. You can see he's kind of aloof, and he's so far removed from the people. He's like, wow, there was 500 people killed. Awesome. No care. In fact, oh, Haman's sons were killed too. I wonder what, you know, I got a pretty big kingdom. I wonder how many other people died today. But callous, he doesn't really care. He's just kind of stating this. And then he goes on to kind of say, okay, now what is your wish? He's just oblivious, like, okay, it's kind of done. Now, you want anything else, Esther, while I have you? It shall be granted to you, and the further and, and what further is your request, it shall be fulfilled. So he gives her an opportunity. Okay, Esther, here's what's happened. Your people have stood up. Wow, they're pretty good fighters. Wow, I'm impressed by their tenacity, by their thoroughness. I can't imagine what happened in the rest of the kingdom. What else is disrupting? So Esther says, you would think, sweet Esther, right? Here's her next verse. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. Let's fight again, round two. Let's finish, king. Let my people finish what's going on. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Seems a little harsh, right? Here's sweet Esther. Sweet, sweet Esther saying, let my people kill more people tomorrow and let the 10 bodies that are already killed, let's hang them and let's display them. Again, it goes back to this holy war concept of God's judgment and his wrath. And he uses us to sometimes carry it out. And in this way, there's a reason for this behind the scenes. And this is the king's again. Verse 14, so the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the 10 sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day, the next day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in the Susa. Highlight circle, but they laid no hands on the plunder. There again, it's not about money. It's not about power. It's simply about a different viewpoint of we're taking out our enemies. God has called us. Now, whether the Jewish fighters know that or realize that or not, maybe, but when you see what has taken place here, you read about and you go back in time to 1 Samuel, there's a king in Israel, the first king called Saul. And Saul was told by God to go after the king of the Agites, King Agog, because the Amalekites, all these ites, if you go to history, it's very neat to see how, anyway, the Amalekites, when Israel and Joshua were coming out of Egypt, they fought against Israel. They didn't let them pass. They attacked them. So a group of people, over a million plus, who for 400 years have been in slavery, so their mindset is warped. When you come out of severe trauma, it takes time to heal. God didn't bring his people out of the Exodus, the easiest and quickest route into Israel. That would have led to war and fighting and mentally and who they were, identity, they had no idea. And so God led them through the desert to groom them, to prepare them, to remind them who he is and who they are. And as they were in this weakened state, the Amalekites said, no, you can't pass, and then attacked them. And God said, you are going to be pretty much wiped out. And so he looked to Saul, the first king. He said, go take out the Amalekites. Take, out king, king, take everything out, the men, the women, all of it. And he didn't. He took the best. He kept the best. And Samuel said, well, now your kingdom is taken from you, given to King David, where that comes in. And the descendants of Saul are Mordecai and Esther. And who do they just take out? Haman, who is the 
direct descendant of King Agog, who Saul let live, and his 10 sons and whomever else. God said it would happen. They looked at it as King Saul. It took over several hundred years later for it to fully come into play. And Esther, whether or not she knows her history, she knows to finish the job well. A few years ago, I, I enjoy watching football here and there. Some of you do, some of you don't. Some of you have very strong opinions about Baltimore, and I, I'm sorry. But I have very strong opinions about New England, and I'm not a fan. And Bill Belichick, some of you know, is a, you know he's going to go in the Hall of Fame one day, great coach with Brady, who was better. He can, whatever. Randy Moss went on their team one year. Great wide receivers in the Hall of Fame. Teamed up with Tom Brady. That year, they lit up the NFL. They went 15-0 and till the New York Giants whipped them in the Super Bowl. Thank you. But throughout that period, I don't like the Giants either. I just don't like New England. Anyway, the point is, if you go back and look at the scores of those games, New England didn't just beat teams. They throttled teams. They never let off the gas. And you see it all the time sometimes in sports where you're up by a certain lead at halftime and you let it go. Again, another NFL analogy, the Atlanta Falcons when they played Brady and Brady came back after halftime in the Super Bowl and they beat them. They were up 28-3. They kept coming back because Atlanta played it soft. Belichick in that year, once he had his foot on the opponent's throat, he never let go. There was no hope for a comeback. He would run up the score and people were like, that's not sportsmanship. No, it's winning. He won. As much as I don't like them, he won. Never let off the gas. And that's kind of like Esther here. She knows we've taken out 500 people who hate us, who are manipulated. And the fact is that the 10 sons of here, and it's Susa, this is the capital. And so this is in like the front. So if you were in a city, a walled city, you'd have the walls around the city. But then there would be like another inner city wall. This is like more in the inner city wall. So you can see 500 people were killed in the innermost city of Susa. These are people of high-ranking authority and power which tells you that if you don't take out, they're going to come back and they're going to get you. And so let's spread this down to the lower quadrant of the city as well. There's got to be people there who don't want, they don't. And Esther's like, let's just end this. We're going to be safe. We're going to act. And she doesn't say it, but pretty much as God's instruments. And they do. An additional 300 men are killed. And it shows again, she doesn't let off. It's finishing well, finish strong. You don't just start well and end poorly. You want to end well. A few years ago, I went to a Sticky Teams conference. Sticky Teams is a, there's a guy at church in, called North Coast out in Southern California in San Diego, Larry Osborne. And Sticky Teams is a book that if you read that, it's a blueprint for how I'm wired and how I lead. But he has a Sticky Teams conference where he purposely, and they're, they're 15,000 multi-site. He brings it East Coast, sometimes West Coast. They keep it small, 200 or less, intentionally for churches and church leaders to figure out and to be able to talk to him and Chris and the others, how do you structure, how do you grow, all these ins and outs. The whole premise of that Sticky Teams conference, every single session was, how do you finish well? Because at that time, so many in ministry were flaming out and were coming out on the scene of all of these failures. And they're like, it doesn't matter if you start well. It matters that you finish well as well. And so it matters. And Esther's like, you got to finish well. We got to run it well. One commentator writes this on this exact session. He goes, and now in Esther 9, we meet Saul's descendants, Esther and Mordecai leading God's people as they rewrite their history of failure with new obedience. 
They have unfinished business with the Amalekites, as I mentioned. They prosecute a new holy war, this time against Haman the Agite, the descendant of King Agag. So when Esther asked for a second day to chase down those who sided with Haman in the lower city, she is not asking out of bloodlust and venom. She's asking permission to do what Saul never did. She wants to complete the task of the holy war, to make a war on them until you have wiped them out. Even the gruesome act of publicly displaying the bodies was part of the tradition of ancient warfare. It is in fact the fate of Esther's ancestor, King Saul and his sons. They were humiliated in this exact same way on the walls of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 31. But now the tables have turned. A great reversal has occurred. It is the enemies being put to open shame. So as brutal it is, and no doubt was, we do, not, we do need to understand that in conducting holy war, the people of God were engaged in something wholly other than a modern program of ethnic cleansing or geopolitical land grabbing. They were prosecuting the decree of God in judgment upon his enemies. It was, in fact, a graphic expression of a deeper conflict that has raged really since Genesis 3, verse 15, when God declared that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would live in perpetual enmity toward each other until the one who would come would crush the serpent's head. It's a microcosm of the big issue that's been plaguing humanity. Esther is acting out on God's will. She recognizes she finishes well. And if we hold your finger here and you were to jump into the New Testament, there's a book called Galatians because our, when you read through the Old Testament, it's context. And context is it was holy war. It was brutal warfare. Jesus has come. Jesus has resurrected. In Ephesians, it says that our fight, and nowadays, 2023, isn't flesh and blood. It's against the principalities of darkness. We fight a little differently than what they did back then in the Old Testament. But Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, he says this, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And he's, Galatians is one of the most fired up books of Paul. If you read through his books in the New Testament, he wrote most of the New Testament. He's one of the apostles. Galatians is one of the first books he writes, the first letter to a church. And he is fierce. If you read through the commentaries, he's like a young whippersnapper just getting on the pulpit for the first time and he's just going to town. And he's corralling and he's kind of getting at the church in Galatia to say, you were doing well. You were living out your faith. You were doing what you were called. Who has tripped you up? You were running so well. And he goes, remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Again, discernment of recognizing who you're around, what you're around. Galatians, the issue was legalism. And Galatians speaks to the fact that, you know, you have the church that was living and growing, and you have these people who have come into the church to say, yeah, Jesus is great, but you also need to do X, Y, and Z, and these follow these rules. So Jesus may save you, but you need to add in all these rules. You need to go back to Judaism of the old, and it's not just good that Jesus alone. And Paul smacks it and says, no, it's by grace you're saved through faith in Ephesians. But he goes, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, because if righteousness, if goodness gets you to heaven, then Christ's death is meaningless and purposeless. And so at the end of Galatians, he's reminding them of, you were doing so well. What has tripped you up? In verse 13 of chapter 5, he writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Key, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Meaning we have immense freedom in Christ to do most all things. We can eat anything. God said, look, it's all good for you. That's why bacon is awesome. 
It wasn't in the Old Testament. It is now. You can eat it. You can go to movies now. You can read. He's saying, but don't use your freedom and use it as a way for your flesh and say, well, God will forgive. God will do this. No, 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 no. Just because you have it doesn't mean you get to lord it over. Just because I have freedom also means that though I don't have a problem maybe sipping on a glass of wine, other people might. And so it means, okay, who am I around and recognizing if that's an issue for someone, you don't do it around them. If they have an issue with a certain type of book, you just don't talk. It's mindfulness. And he says, look, only use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't do it for the flesh, but through serving. And he says this, this is the neat part. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to fulfill the law and how we fight in 2023. You love God, you love others. What are we talking about? You belong here first. Then you start to believe. And then that behavior becomes into play. But we always reverse that. And it's like, no, no, no. You serve one another. You help one another. You love one another. You pray for one another. For the whole law is summed up. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to fulfill all 10 commandments, the whole 600 plus commands in Deuteronomy? Love God. That's your vertical. And love other people. And go read 1 Corinthians 13, and that defines what is true love. It explains it in great detail. Now, mind you, yes, is God still a God of justice? and gra- Yes. But we're called here that the way we demonstrate who God is to people is to care for them, to love one another. And Paul's saying, look, bite, in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In essence, You were running well, now you've turned inward and you're competing for the legalist side that I have held this many spiritual growth points this week and and I've read my Bible this amount of times and memorized this amount of scripture and I've done this law and look how good and there's this ranking internally focused. Paul is trying to say, get out of your heads, look out of the walls, you were doing so well. Get back up and start doing that again. Love one another. In Hebrews who we don't know the author, but we'll read through that this fall. He writes again in 12 verses 1. He says, Therefore, since we, you and I, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. You can highlight that. The race, meaning your life, that is set before you. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despised its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. In essence, run. Live the life that God has called you. Keeping your eyes not on yourself and looking downward, but keeping your eyes focused. If you're a runner, it's not good to keep your head like this running. You keep it up. You focus on what's ahead, and you keep moving ahead, and you keep your eyes not on a person. You keep it on Jesus, who endured things, who associates, who can relate to you and I. He goes further in Hebrews 12, verse 11, for the moment of all discipline. And discipline, it's not just a spank. Sometimes it's quiet time, you know. Growing up, there's five of us kids in the house. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all. My brother, you needed to spank and beat. Me, you just told me you're disappointed. My younger sister, you set her alone in her room. Different ways cause different discipline to help. And all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant. If discipline was fun, we wouldn't do it. But discipline is good for us. Discipline is a positive because it does something. But later it says it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Hebrews 12, 1 through 13 is probably one of my favorite chapters, those few verses, because it speaks to the fact that if you're a true son or daughter of God, you go through what we call growth points. And that's where he talks about the moment all discipline seems painful, but God says, I see you and I love you. And because I love you, I'm not going to let you stay in this treading water area of your faith. I'm going to grow you. And I'm going to take you through some things that may seem painful and may seem pointless, but in reality, they produce within you a righteousness and endurance and a faith that is tested and will last so that you can finish the race that is marked out for you. Because sometimes you go through things in life and you have no idea why you're going through them, only to later in life find out someone else is going through that and you have the ability to come alongside and walk and empathize with them and see them at that point. And at other points, it's like, I don't understand this. And you go to your grave and have no idea why until you're in heaven. You see, oh, that's why. Because of that ripple effect. You have no idea why you go through sometimes what you go through, why God allows it. You read Job, it's like, who are we to ask sometimes? And we'll look at that concept next week with chapter 10. The point is here is finish well, that we're to finish strong. And that as you go through this life, you're going to face hardship. Jesus said, look, you're going you're going to face it. It's part of life. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. It's not an arrogant statement. It says here, keep your eyes on him. Because he's overcome, keep your eyes on him. You read 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to man. I mean, you're going to face temptation. But it's something that is normal to all of us that we all face. But in that predicament, God will provide a way of escape. If you're looking meaning he won't tempt you beyond what you can bear. Is he going to throw things in life beyond what you can bear? Yes. Why? Because if you could overcome everything in your life, well, then what do you need Jesus for? But he's really going to put you in positions at times where you're going to need to rely on him. He's not going to tempt you. Sin, beyond what you can bear, keep your eyes on him. Finish well. Marriages, finish well well. Parenting, finish well. It gets harder as they get older. Keep on it. It might seem pointless and drag out. Is this, start praying for them. Start bringing around grandma and grandpa a little more. Let them do some of that a little bit. But it matters to finish well. And Esther looks at this, says, we're going to finish well. We're going to take all of you out. We are not going to let this simmer and sift. We're not going to let you come back, potentially harass us. And it says in verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000. That's a lot of people. That is a ton of people. Most armies didn't get to that size. If you did, it was a very short period of time. 75,000 who hated them. I can highlight circle. Third time it says it, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Again, if, if there's no exclamation points in the Bible when it was written. If something was important, it was repeated. If it was really important, I want you to listen, I want you to see this, it was repeated three times. And three times, they didn't take the goods. They could have made themselves wealthy. They didn't. They recognized what this was, and they acted accordingly. 
In verse 20, as we kind of wrap this up, we can rejoice then if we finish well, and as we run the race, rejoice in the faithfulness of God. Because God is faithful through it all. He remains faithful. And you see in verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things. He sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that they had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to destroy the Jews and cast and with them and had cast pur, that is lots, to crush them and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan he had devised against the Jews should remain on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term pur. Therefore, because of all that is written in this letter and of what they have faced in this matter and of what has happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them in that without fail that they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time of the appointed year. All through the years, Purim is celebrated. It's still celebrated to this year. The festival is instituted, but there's two things they're doing. They're remembering God's providence and they're rejoicing. They're remembering the good, what really has happened and transpired. And there's rejoicing. Esther really is about remembering the saving rest of God's grace and then rejoice in it. God's grace shown at the cross and we rejoice in it. Now, what is unique about this is what it was said right there, which is contrary to the earlier part in Esther. In verse 24, for Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. It cast pur, that is the lots, to crush them. But when it came before the king, did it really? He gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return to his own head and that his son should be hanged on the gallows. That's like a political... The king up to this point is oblivious. He had no idea who was Haman was plotting against. He didn't know who the people were. And so if you're Persian and you read that, okay, it's referring to the king Xerxes. So it's a little bit of a political switcheroo. And yet, if you're an astute reader and you read who's writing this, which king is he referring to? And you read it again, and if you think about it as the king of kings, the true king of kings, God, then it reads this way, For Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is the cast of lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before God the king, he gave the orders in writing, that his evil plan should be that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. The astute reader say, oh, Persian, if you're reading, the, okay, it's referring to the king. You're, but really, the king of kings, you're not going to thwart his plans. And he knew all along what was happening and he moved all the pieces without even being mentioned. And yet, right there it is. Purim, remembering and rejoicing about God's faithfulness in the midst of this. And even wherever you're at in life, God is faithful. He is continuously with you. And so as we close out this morning, I want to read one last point that kind of brings us all to where does this apply 2023? Where does this take place? How do we see this? Esther is about remembering that saving rest of God's grace and rejoicing in it. That is what they were to do at Purim. 
And it is what every Christian should do on every Lord's day. On the first day of the week, when death was undone, the stone rolled away and life and immortality were bought, brought to light in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather to remember the Sabbath rest of God and to rejoice. Sunday is our festival day. The Christian Sabbath is our day for feasting and gladness, for giving and celebration. And a part of our task as we seek to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is to rehearse again the victory of Jesus, to tell and be told the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It is to remember the redemptive rest of God won at Calvary so that whatever the dark clouds of Monday to Saturday, on this day, the day when light was spoken into darkness and the light of the world rose in triumph, on this day, the light of the gospel might shine afresh into our darkness and the darkness never overcomes it. That on this day, our sorrow might be turned into gladness and our mourning into a holiday. If you think Sabbath observant is a killjoy, you have never understood nor kept the Sabbath rightly. It is a day of rest and gladness, a day of joy and light on which to remember the redemptive rest won by Christ and rejoice in that hope. Let me pray this morning. Lord God, we are grateful to be gathered here in your name to know the rest, Jesus, that you have given and bring to us through your son, Jesus Christ that it's not on account of anything we have done. Lord, we were enemies with you, and yet while we were enemies, you chose to die for us so that we might become sons and daughters of the Most High, not by works, Lord, but by faith in what Jesus has done and belief in his resurrection from the dead. And so, Jesus, we ask that this morning, wherever we find ourselves in the hardship of life and the roughness, Lord, that we would be able to rejoice this day to be refreshed and renewed in our faith, to be challenged to live it out wherever we're at. If we've fallen a little short, Lord, in our walk with you, if we've been running and we've kind of fallen down, help us to get back up. Help us to start loving our neighbors and loving the people that you've placed around us, to care for them genuinely, to be your hands and feet, not to agree with maybe everything they are doing in life, Lord, but to just walk with them in life, to demonstrate who you are to them. And Lord, let us... Each Sunday, remember the hope we have in you. And every time we gather together, we may be refreshed and renewed to be ready for the upcoming week ahead of the people we get to encounter, the opportunities that present themselves in such unique ways to be able to share your faith. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen.